Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek this harmony, which scripture tells us is something that he gives by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. Because the Book of Concord not, is not just a simple book that was created without looking at other uh, uh, truth, but they, as we believe, they are in accord with God's holy word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Today, we continue our study of the preface to the Book of Concord. So we finished our time in the small catechism, which we're all very familiar with. And last week, we had the Reverend Dr. Rich Radowski um, from Lutheran Bible Translators give us a, the importance of the Book of Concord, especially in light of a changing culture, and not only here, but around the world, that what was written in the 16th century was important then and is important for us today. And today we are going to dig even deeper into the history of the whole book of Concord as, as we look at it with every single written book, because it just didn't happen in one year, but it's a number of writings throughout the 16th century, which clearly points us to Christ and also that the goal with the goal of a clear conscience for the people of who received and the people who preached the word of God. So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the preface to the Book of Concord, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in Confession of Christ this morning, we welcome the Reverend Dr. John Maxfield, Professor of History and Religious Studies at Concordia University of Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Maxfield, welcome to Concord Matters. Um, thank you very much, President Finnan. I appreciate the invitation to join you today. Well, Dr. Maxfield, this is our first time together, and I believe you're at least my first guest from the, the great, uh, great nation of Canada. So tell, tell us about yourself and, the, and your work at Concordia University of Edmonton. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm not from Canada, but I've lived here now 13 and a half years, so I guess oh. and I became citizens with my family a few years ago. Um, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area of the United States and um, uh, served in the Lutheran parish ministry in the 1990s and 2000s. And um, along the way, in the midst of uh, various positions as pastor, um, and, or I should say in between, uh, I studied uh, for my doctoral work in church history at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, finishing that program in 2004, and moved to Edmonton in 2009 after um, uh, serving a congregation in Minnesota, St. Francis, Minnesota. And... Yay, Minnesota. Pardon? Yay, Minnesota. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I was um, a Lutheran pastor at the time, and Concordia University of Edmonton was, at the time, closely associated with Lutheran Church Canada. And my appointment here was a call from the church through the Board of Regents to teach 
theology and church history uh, here at Concordia, which at the time had a small church work program, um, but um, um, even at that time and since 1991 has been more of an independent university uh, supported by the province of Alberta than a strictly church-related university. And so that's an interesting and different context in which to serve still as an ordained pastor, um, um, teaching um, both history and church history and a few theology courses, including a course on the Lutheran confessions um, here at Concordia. Although I imagine um, my time of teaching Lutheran confessions was probably come to an end. It's generally been a smaller enrollment course and they're starting to clamp down on our uh, ability to support a very small enrollment courses. The last time I taught my course in the Lutheran Confessions was last winter term or spring term, as you would call it down in down south, as we say. Um, I had one student, uh, a mature woman from Mexico who was Catholic, and uh, I enjoyed very much teaching the Book of Concord to her. And she very much enjoyed uh, that interaction with the Catholic tradition, uh, but also from the perspective of the Lutheran confession of the gospel uh, as a given in the Book of Concord as a whole. So. Well, this is great. And like I mentioned last week, we had Reverend Dr. Richard Rudowski, who works with Bible translation. And so he spoke about the importance of the Book of Concord um, because we can just make it sound like, you know, no confession but the Bible, which is a creedal statement, to be honest. But it is it is something that, okay, we look at the Book of Concord, we confess it, we are, are workers in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, say this is what we believe, teach, and confess. Our congregations assign in their constitutions that this is what we believe, teach, and confess. And it's important because we need to have, if you will, that filter as we look at what we preach and what we teach in distinction of maybe what other uh, theologies are out there, especially is it in line with God's holy word. So as we talk about that with Dr. Radowski today, uh, Dr. Maxfield is a uh, historian and, and a very, um, very accomplished in, in uh, church history and also very accomplished in the confessions. And so, so Pastor, uh, Dr. Maxfield, I want to start this way. The preface is written around 1580 or 1584. And so why is it important that we realize there's a lot of history that leads us up to the point where this preface is written? And so break that down for us. Uh, what What's all going on? That's a big question. But what's all going on by the time this preface is even written? Yeah, very, very important question. So the Book of Concord was first published with this preface in German in June, in uh, 1580, uh, on June 25th, precisely um, uh, 50 years after the presentation of the Augsburg Confession as the Confession of Luther's teaching, uh, which had been rejected by the Papal Church as heresy uh, to the Diet of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, uh, meeting in Augsburg, Germany in, in um, the spring and summer of uh, 1530. So right away, uh, we see the publication of the Book of Concord 50 years later shows us that this book, which is really a collection of confessions, beginning 
not with uh, the first of these confessions chronologically is not at all the Augsburg Confession, but the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, as we call it, the Athanasian Creed, uh, and uh, other earlier uh, other documents of the Lutheran Reformation previous to the Augsburg Confession, uh, namely Luther's small and large catechisms of 1529. The important thing to recognize from that historical context of its publication, the, of, of the Book of Concord and its preface, is that it is the result of um, over 50 years of development of the Lutheran Reformation of the Protestant Reformation. And the Book of Concord, as made clear, uh, is a statement of the supporters of the Augsburg Confession, principally within the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, what we, mostly it corresponds to Germany today, but certainly was broader than that in the 16th century. Um, these confessors, um, both identifying with the Augsburg Confession of 1530, uh, 50 years earlier, and acknowledging quite openly in the preface that controversies within those supporters of the Augsburg Confession had led to a time of terrible discordia. Discordia uh, means disagreement and dissension. Concordia, uh, from which we get the name Book of Concord, means harmony or with hearts together. And this book of Concord was thus not only the product of Luther's Reformation, but of a period of sustained dissension and controversy within the Lutheran Reformation to bring about harmony out of discordia, uh, out of uh, dissension and um, a lot of animosity, to be honest. And they were seeking to move beyond the animosity and the attacking of persons. Um, and uh, the Book of Concord as a whole came shortly after the agreements made that led to the Formula of Concord of 1577, which was the final stage and the last of the documents incorporated in the Book of Concord, uh, and the final stage in bringing harmony to the Lutheran Reformation and the churches that now for 50 years had uh, supported Luther's teaching and confession of the gospel. So as we look at this, we, we really are, um, you go to the small catechisms, the small catechism, excuse me, large catechism, we're looking at 1529, and then we are connecting all the way to 1580, that would be the 50 years that you're speaking of. Mm -hmm. And their goal of, of this all is to unite. But it's quite complex because in America, we could kind of say, oh, we're going to start, um, we're gonna start a, a church body. And here's what we believe, teach, and confess. All right, let's gather together. How are we going to function? Great. Literally without much government intervention. I mean, we would have some, but nothing um, that, not not a ton. But in those days, I mean, the government was very much so connected in this. And, and, he, and you want to break that down for us a little bit, the role of of all of this, the 50 plus years of the Protestant Reformation and the government and the, and the realm of the church? Yes, very, very important. Okay, so first of all, um, the Reformation happened in a clear, uh, um, 
I want to, I don't want to say opposition to, but it, it did become that the Reformation uh, beginning with Luther's um, criticism of the papal church, the Roman Catholic church through his theses against on the uh, topic of indulgences of October 1517, usually uh, viewed as the, the beginning of the Reformation, we might better call it a, a, a catalyst for a controversy over Luther's teaching that resulted in his um, uh, reject the, the rejection of Luther by the Roman church, his excommunication. And then shortly after Luther was excommunicated by the papal church in 1521, he was then condemned by the, the Holy Roman Empire meeting in its diet at that time in Worms in 1521 uh, through the uh, response to Luther of the very young, he was only 21 years old at the time, uh, newly elected Emperor Charles, the, Charles V. From that condemnation of Luther, not only by the church, but by the state or by the empire, uh, the Reformation immediate, uh, became inseparable from what we today call politics or civil politics. And government became involved in the formation of Lutheran churches, not because um, Luther or anybody else thought that um, they had any business controlling the church, uh, but because Luther appealed in his very important um, appeal to the Christian nobility of the German nation, uh, written and published in August of 1521, or 1520, prior to his excommunication and condemnation. And because Luther appealed to these uh, rulers as Christian leaders to intervene in, in the dispute over reform, um, uh, the Reformation developed as a matter um, involving both the government at the church through its bishops and the governments of the Holy Roman Empire and the localities, the territories governed by princes or counts, uh, the uh, cities sometimes governed by uh, city councils with a mayor quite independent of, of a local lord, as they called it in feudal society. Um, the Reformation always developed as a matter of law, guided by theologians, but always in conversation with, and eventually through the approval of civil leaders, uh, of localities, of territories, emperors, and then eventually in places like England to a very different outcome uh, by the crown, by a government that's just developing at that time, to be a bureaucratic monarchy and not just uh, allegiance to an individual, but rather uh, a, a functioning monarchy that, uh, that um, became characterized in the age of absolutism as uh, um, forms of monarchy that had absolute control uh, over the lives of their subjects. And that meant control not only of uh, their civil life, the laws of the state, but also of the church. And though it played out very differently in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, um, it still was always, from the beginning, 
the Reformation was still was always a matter of church and state, and therefore of law, and of um, whether the laws of the empire or the laws of a territory or city would allow for and promote Luther's reforms or the ref other other ideas of reform espoused, for example, in Switzerland by Huldrych Swingley and others. Um, later. Um, in Geneva becomes the dominant place where Jean Calvin, a French reformer's activities became endorsed uh, by the city government and um, became a center of what was called international Calvinism. That's the real uh, germination and growth of the reformed tradition of evangelical Christianity. Whereas in Lutheran, in, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, primarily, um, the Lutheran uh, or evangelical Lutheran confession of the gospel uh, prospered, but also was curtailed or limited or restricted by civil governments. And um, from the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, which was a presentation of Lutheran, of a Lutheran confession to the civil government of the empire, to the empire, emperor Charles V, who is called, by the way, in the preface, the Emperor Charles V of excellent memory. Uh, so he's remembered with fondness, even though, in fact, it was Charles V who finally raised an army with the support of the Pope to crush Lutheranism in the empire shortly after Luther's death. And that was what was the catalyst for the terrible dissension within Lutheranism in this period of, of um, approximately... Uh, 25 to 30 years uh, between, yeah, 30 years between Luther's death in 1546 and uh, the formula of Concord of 1577. Uh, and, 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 and Dr. Maxfield, this is phenomenal, phenomenal as we think about it because it can be so confusing because I still remember taking Lutheran confessional heritage um, during college and I took it from a different college, Lutheran, his legacy. And it, it's the history is so complex and so important for us to try to break it down to the, the, the best of our ability. And, and so as we look at this, um, what was the main goal? Let's just talk about the, the ones who brought the Book of Concord together as we read the preface, as we have looking at the preface today in 1580. Uh, what was their main goal as they brought all these documents, these confessions together? What was their main purpose? How would you describe that? Um, their goal was to resolve the issues as the first, um, I think all of these titles in the preface uh, given in brackets are uh, later are editorial editions, or perhaps they, well, no, I think they're editorial editions. That's why they're in square brackets. Uh, but the right. issues is the first section uh, right after the introductory paragraph that announces what was at stake. And uh, I'd like to just read how the rhetoric of the preface introduces precisely this, the answer to this question, what was their goal in forming a book of Concord, a collection of various confessions of the evangelical Lutheran Reformation. The preface reads there, in these last times, and in this old age of the world, what a remarkable favor of Almighty God has arisen 
after the darkness of papal superstitions. According to God's unspeakable love, patience, and mercy, he willed that the light of his gospel and word, through which alone we receive true salvation, should arise and shine clearly and purely in Germany, our most beloved fatherland. So these uh, people who wrote and who signed uh, the, um, the Book of Concord and the signatures are given at the end of the preface. And very important to note is that the signatures of the Book of Concord, like the Augsburg Confession, are not the signatures of theologians, of churchmen. They are the theologians of, um, of the political powers of the, of the territories and cities of the uh, empire. With a few exceptions, there are at least two bishops mentioned uh, among the signatories, John, Bishop of Meissen, Erbehardt, Bishop of Lübeck, maybe a few others. I don't want to take time to go through, uh, but I, I think those are the only two churchmen, but they were churchmen who were also rulers of those cities, or if not the sole rulers, very important rulers, now Lutheran bishops. Uh, identifying with the Lutheran Reformation, but also civil rulers. And so um, uh, to, to make a bridge from your first question, the role of government, to your second question, what was the purpose in uh, writing this uh, preface, in communicating uh, the reason for putting together and publishing this Christian Book of Concord, as it's called, it is to lay out how by God's favor, what we would say God's grace, the light of the gospel is shining clearly once again in Germany after years of the darkness of papal superstitions. And so their, that was their purpose, to make sure the gospel shone brightly, acknowledging that it had not shone brightly for quite a long time, and that was the reason for Luther's Reformation, and as the preface later continues to demonstrate, uh, there had become a lot of dissension among Lutherans uh, regarding the, the confession of that gospel light. And they wanted to bring clarity uh, among Lutherans uh, and also a, a response to their adversaries, uh, those who were uh, continuing to attack the Lutheran churches and their theologians and their government uh, leaders. Um, so that, that I think is, is the purpose that they had. Oh, it's wonderful. As we look at, uh, we, are, we are referencing the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition from Concordia Publishing House. Specifically, I wanted to just highlight on page 11 of the preface is all where uh, Dr. Maxfield uh, referenced the, the signers of the preface. And, and I find it fascinating because often what will happen if you talk about the Book of Concord, people will say, well, that's just what pastors read, you know, and, and that's and that's true because and our teachers is that we want our pastors and teachers and called workers to confess what they believe, which means hopefully they read what they confess. Right. Um, but also the movement, if you will, the Protestant Reformation, the unifying of the church was a significantly lay-led 
group. I mean, uh, how would you how would you describe that, Pastor? With about two minutes before our time, and we need to take a break. How would you? I mean, am I, am I wrong in saying that? Because all those people are at laity who are theologians. I mean, they 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 you know they believed in it, but also it was mainly laity. Any thoughts? Yeah, they're laity, but more important, they're Christians who serve God in the state, uh, in the the realm of politia, as Luther called it, uh, uh, of the three estates or orders that God has established for life in the world. God has established the church, uh, the political realm, every realm of law and order in society, and then finally the family and the whole economic order that arises out of the family. So what's important about understanding the role of political leaders in signing and therefore supporting the publication of the Book of Concord, again, just as they had done so with the, um, uh, the Augsburg Confession in 1530, was their standing behind and supporting these Lutheran pastors and theologians in their resolution of the problems within Lutheranism. Again, that were matters probably, but primarily uh, matters of church or ecclesiastical dissension, uh, but that uh, bore um, destructive uh, effect in the broader society. And so this was, a, we might say, a desperate effort of both theologians and civil leaders as Christians to bring harmony to their society as, to, as, as well as to their churches and the teachers of their churches. Um, I hope that answers your question fully. Um, it's, it's very important to understand that um, politicians did not control the pu publication of the Formula of Concord and the Book of Concord as a whole, but they promoted it. Uh, but interestingly, sometimes with exceptions, and I'm just getting into the research on this uh, myself now, but um, remarkably, the chief author of the book of the Formula of Concord, Martin Chemnitz, who was superintendent of the church in Brunswick, the city, and then also of the territory of Brunswick and Lüneburg, um, he was the form the most important figure that is that uh, is established this harmony. Uh, but his prince, Duke Julius of Brunswick, actually forbid the publication of the Formula of Concord and I think also the Book of Concord in his lands. So uh, it's very interesting how uh, this dynamic of, of civil, uh, the, the, the role of civic leaders or politicians in the life of the church could be uh, supportive, but also could uh, try to control the church in unhealthy ways and destructive ways. And they had to work through that as well as work through the, um, the harmony being promoted in the Book of Concord itself. It sounds complicated, just like today. So, <laughs> so we need to take our break right now. We are studying the preface to the Book of Concord and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, 
and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. studying the history and background of the Book of Concord with the Reverend Dr. John Maxfield of Concordia University of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So Dr. Maxfield, uh, you've, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the goals as we look at the history is to make it as simple as possible, but you are, you know, like you've committed your life to the, the study of church history. So it easily can become very complex, which is why, as you talked about, a desperate attempt of politicians to unite the reformers and their teaching. And then you have other players, such as Martin Chemnitz, who was a main player in making sure that this gospel message, this light that had come to Germany, would continue on. Now, I I, want to do this because I've heard many people, theologians, uh, professors, who have said in many ways, we should not be called Lutherans, we should be Chemnitzians is what they proclaimed. So you want, to, you want to touch on that a little bit, Martin Chemnitz and his importance, because you mentioned it, but I want to see if you want to share more, because I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Luther didn't like it when people were called Lutherans initially. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that was, by the way, the way Catholic papalists referred to Lutherans as heretics. You know, they're a bunch of oh, followers of the heretic Luther. Um, uh, generally, Luther simply preferred uh, to refer to uh, the churches and, and of individuals as Christians. Um, mm-hmm. Although evangelicals became uh, commonly used as a way of defining those supporters of Luther's ideas. Uh, uh, evangelicals, because that means the gospel. And they saw themselves and were seen by others as the promoters of the gospel. Again, referring to that light come to Germany. Uh, in these last in, uh, times and in this old age of the world. Um, yeah. So um, eventually um, Lutheranism became the name uh, for various reasons of the churches, uh, although in Germany they were uh, always called evangelical. And originally um, uh, evangelische Kirche or evangelical churches in the formula of Concord principally authored by um, Martin Chemnitz, who you've just mentioned, superintendent of one of the more important cities. Uh, and by the way, Brunswick, the town where he was called pastor and later made a superintendent, uh, was one of the earliest to formally implement the Lutheran Reformation through a church order or constitution written by Johannes Guggenhagen in uh, September 1528 before even the churches of Saxony had completed their process uh, for which Martin Luther wrote his catechisms of formalizing their doctrine and uh, bringing uh, harmony to what what we might call a a church constitution in Saxony. Uh, Already this had happened uh, in this town of Brunswick where many years later, uh, uh, Martin Chemnitz is a major figure. Well, uh, I definitely don't think we should be called Chemnitzian. That would be the <laughs> uh, point. But but um, that would be the point of critics. Uh, by the way, I have some friends that are um, 
uh, in the area here, actually, a farmer's outside of town that my wife met in, in uh, funny ways, but we don't need to get into that. But they're, they're Seventh-day Adventists, actually. And I've had some conversations with them about Christianity. And, and they're always so supportive, uh, very um, in, enthusiastic about, about the person of Luther and his bold mm. confession of the gospel. But they see Lutheranism as, um, uh, in a negative way, as impacted by the second Martin, as he's called even among us, Martin Chemnitz. And so uh, they might refer to us as Chemnitzian. Um, I think you're getting at the fact that um, uh, our confessional tradition acknowledges that this discordia that erupted after Luther's death and plagued Lutheranism in Germany particularly for 30 years was healed by Martin Chemnitz, um, lar largely. I mean, there was others involved, but he was mo one of certainly one of the most important figures to not only author the formula of Concord, but to promote the harmony that was finally announced and proclaimed to the world through the Concordia or the Book of Concord. Um, so so uh, anyway, Chemnitz um, is rightly called the second Martin because he played such a pivotal role in preserving Luther's Reformation and uh, making sure that it did not die from internal dissension as well as outward attacks from both the papal church which continued and adversaries among the what becomes the reformed tradition of protestantism but in the uh i notice in the formula of concord itself while the augsburg confession does talk about um being part of the universal christian or catholic church and our teaching is uh, not contrary or opposed to that of the universal catholic Christian Church, um, the formula of Concord 30, or nearly 30 years uh, later, excuse me, nearly uh, 50 years later, uh, uses language like the pure evangelical churches uh, or the teaching of the evangelical Christian churches. And any language of Catholic is totally gone in the uh, formula of Concord simply because the Augsburg Confession was never accepted by the Catholic Church, uh, either the papal Western variety or, for that matter, the Eastern Church, which continued to reject um, Lutheranism as, uh, as part of the corruptions of the Latin Church that the Eastern tradition has been uh, distinguishing it from itself from for a thousand years. And uh, the, while the Eastern tradition claims that it really alone is the universal Catholic Church, um, the Latin Church, under the leadership of the papacy, has also claimed to be the universal Catholic Church. Lutheranism has never made that claim. It certainly claims to be part of the universal Catholic Church. But it, it removes the name Catholic from its uh, claim uh, to being a faithfully Christian in the later documents. Um, again, uh, these are simply the true evangelical churches or the evangelical Christian churches um, that uh, subscribe the Augsburg Confession, but also bring harmony amongst those many who subscribe to that confession but came into great discordia 
uh, in the again after the period of Luther's death. Now, Dr. Maxfield, as we speak about a whole bunch of different figures, as we are to the preface to the Nomberg Conference of 1561, uh, also it talks about the Nomberg Conference failure in the same section here, which is uh, page four of the preface of the Reader's Edition of the of the uh, Lutheran Confessions. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? What was the Nomberg Conference of 1561 and its failure? Yes. Um, and to get to that, I think we need to just back up a little bit to, to talk a little more about these introductory paragraphs under the issues, because what they acknowledge right away from after that period, after that point that I, that I read earlier in these last times and in this old age of the world, um, God has brought forth again the light of his gospel. There's recognition that this gospel light was confessed at the Diet of Augsburg in 1530 and um, that it was uh, attacked by uh, the Romanists, that is the papal church and others. But the, as, the, as that announcement of the issues being treated in the Book of Concord goes on, it talks about how, I'm looking at paragraph four right now on page three, how the enemy of mortals, Satan, cunningly labored, he scattered the seeds of false doctrine and dissensions in the churches and schools. He also labored to stir up divisions combined with offense. And all of that is the background uh, to the problems that are being addressed uh, already in uh, 1558. It talks about, uh, toward the end of that section, just above uh, the section on the Naumburg Conference of 1561, how the princes or electors um, met in a diet in 1558 to bring a resolution to this dissension that has been described. Now this, um, I believe, I, I would have to do some more research on it, but I'm pretty sure from the language here that this diet of 1558 was not a diet of the empire, of the whole empire, as for example, the Diet of the Empire at Augsburg in 1555, which for the first time after the warfare that first crushed Lutheranism um, or the states supporting Lutheranism, um, the, the Peace of Augsburg of 1555 announced uh, a, a legal framework in which the, the churches and teaching of the Augsburg Confession could be recognized within the empire even as they were, um, even though they were not ever recognized by the papal church. So uh, in 1558, they're dealing with the aftermath of the, or we might describe it as the legal framework in which Lutheranism was allowed to prosper in the empire. Um, but uh, this dissension was still deeply disturbing those Lutheran churches, their theologians, and the societies, including the territories of electors and other princes, um, were living. And so this diet, to get back to the point, of 1558 was apparently a diet simply of Lutheran princes, not of the whole empire where we would call it a regional diet, or historians would refer to various regional diets which would occur 
uh, at times when the whole empire was not meeting. Um, and so in 1558, so that's um, 11 years after the war in which the armies of uh, Charles V crushed the Lutheran supporting princes of Saxony and other states. It's three years after the Peace of Augsburg finally granted a legal framework for the existence of Lutheranism uh, in parts of Germany and Catholicism continuing in other parts of Germany. And um, this effort of Lutheran princes then to try to bring harmony um, and to deal with, uh, as it says at the end of that section, um, uh, in a thorough but friendly manner, there would be a conference among us about the things that are hatefully charged by our adversaries against our churches and schools. Uh, note, first of all, that uh, phrase churches and schools, they always go together in the preface. And schools were understood to be the primary mission of the church. Uh, we would call them public schools still to this day in Germany. Um, the public schools operate uh, that uh, it, that developed out of the Lutheran Reformation, but they were decidedly Christian schools. And the rectors or uh, principals, as we would call them today, of those schools were recognized to be clergy, or or at least um, um, uh, we in the Missouri Synod we developed this language of um, of oh I can't remember the exact uh, nomenclature but offices in support of pastor of the pastoral ministry, including mm -hmm. that of teachers and leaders of Christian schools. Those are always joined. And again, that shows that the Reformation just wasn't just about churches and their doctrine, but the whole society, including the way children and youth were educated in the schools uh, for service in the family and in the church and in the state. Um, it's all together of a piece in what is still considered to be a Christian society. Now to get to this section on the Naumburg Conference. So three years after this regional diet of princes, they, they finally uh, gather now in the town of Naumburg in Thuringia, uh, ruled by the elector of Saxony. And it says that we took in hand the Augsburg Confession we all subscribed with one mind to that godly confession. Later it says we did this so that both for his imperial majesty, our most clement Lord, uh, by the way, I'll interrupt there, no longer Charles V, he had abdicated in the wake of the Peace of Augsburg settlement. He abdicated and his son, or no, excuse me, his brother Ferdinand uh, became the emperor while uh, Charles V's son, Philip, became the ruler of his other realms as the, uh, really the most powerful monarch in the world. He was king of Spain and the Low Countries. Spain, of course, was a power also in the New World at the time. So it was a worldwide emperor of Charles V empire. And um, he gave, uh, he handed over to his son those realms, but to his brother, Ferdinand, uh, the... Um, the the uh, imperial office in Germany, and that was passed down in the in the Duke or in the um, uh, emperors that existed in all the way until the time of Napoleon, 
when finally the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation came to an end, I think in 1805 or 1806. Uh, so this is a long history. And so to get back to the point, um, uh, these Lutherans, uh, uh, politicians, princes, uh, wanted to confess before his imperial majesty, Ferdinand, uh, our most clement Lord, and also universally for all, for all people, that there might be this permanent testimony. It has never been our intention to defend or spread any new and strange teaching. Rather, we desired uh, to constantly support and retain the truth that we professed at Augsburg in 1530. We were also led to hope, to hold a certain hope that in this way, those who oppose the pure evangelical doctrine would stop making false charges and accusations. So you see the purpose of that conference in 1561 was to acknowledge that we all hold to the Augsburg Confession or to that doctrine of the gospel uh, laid before the empire at Augsburg near uh, 20, uh, no, 31 years prior, and to try to bring um, uh, harmony uh, in, uh, from the dissension that had now existed uh, for, uh, well, let's, let's do our math, um, 10, 14, uh, about 10 years, really. It was in the aftermath of, of the war in um, uh, 1547 that these dissensions, which we still today refer to the dissensions between the genuine Lutherans, Gnasio Lutherans, um, and the Philippists, uh, uh, those who were trying to work some kind of compromise of the Reformation in the time known as the interim uh, before uh, a church council sponsored by the papacy could bring harmony to the church and reform, it was expected. Uh, anyway, the, the Philippists were charged with compromising uh, and really uh, abandoning Luther's gospel in their efforts to, um, I, think, um, I think there were good efforts on the part of Philip and his followers, uh, but they failed. <laughs> and um, this Naumburg conference was the first attempt to finally try to bring res resolution to this uh, dissension among Lutherans, that is, adherence to the Augsburg Confession. And that leads to the next section, the Naumburg Conference failed. <laughs> it's, so there was a failure somewhere. Yeah, lots of failures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the and, formula and, and, of Concord doesn't come till yet again, uh, more than 15 years later. Uh, so Naumburg Conference, 1561, it fails to bring harmony. And uh, I don't want to take time to, to read through, again, some of the language, but our hearers can, uh, listeners can, can go through and look at how it describes this dissension. And that it's not only religious disagreements about teach, false teachings versus the truth, but there's also a personal alienation going on. And I, I mentioned that because when finally, now over 15 years later, the Torgau Conference comes in 1576, which did not fail, but led to the Formula of Concord of 1577, and then finally to the Book of Concord of 1580. 
uh, here they finally bring harmony. And one of the important ways that they did so, and you'll note this in the formula of Concord, is that they simply did not mention any names or even the parties uh, as they um, tried to work through these various disagreements that are all treated in the formula of Concord. So Martin Chemnitz, the, one of the chief writers of the formula, he never mentions himself. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was his teacher and very important um, influencer on Martin and the other supporters of the formula of Concord, is not mentioned, uh, although um, the errors that had been carried about in Philip's name by the so-called Philippists uh, are carefully explored. And again and again, only mentioning Luther and repeatedly mentioning the Augsburg Confession as the statement of Luther's doctrine, uh, they, they brought harmony finally through the formula of Concord by resolving all these issues of doctrine. In other words, they, they, they stepped back from the personal animosities, we might say the church political struggles, and they dealt with the issues honestly and faithfully and as it says on page six of the top left, uh, right, uh, left column, out of this meeting in Torgau, the least suspected theologians were gathered there. And it says their purpose was to promote the godly goal of harmony, concordia, among the church's teachers. And uh, yeah, the rest of the language there shows how they did that. Uh, and uh, it was accomplished originally through the Torgau book, which came out of this conference. And uh, I think pretty much the solid declaration of the formula of Concord corresponds to this Torgau book, which itself was the putting together of several other documents that had developed during this period of 15 years since the Naumburg conference, when they tried to bring about uh, some resolution to these conflicts among theologians principally. And then, uh, then the epitome of the formula of Concord was kind of a, a summation of what was more thoroughly uh, dealt with in the solid or thorough declaration as it's often called, also called. And that's very helpful because it's gonna be a long time until we get to the solid declaration and epitome as we yes. slowly plow through uh, the Book of Concord. And I, I would encourage you, our guest, and I, I will do so myself, is to look at the Torgau Conference again, because how it ends is, is, is so important in the history of what we believe, teach, and confess in the Lutheran Confessions. But often, I remember reading this in, in seminary, but also kind of, I mean, if you were to ask me right now, the dynamics of it, that and now it's kind of perking my interest because this was the great hope that, hey, we were able to do this here around the, the Augsburg Confession, and therefore it brings about even more clarifying statements of the Solid Declaration and the Epitome, which brings us all together. And, and when they write this preface, they are fresh off. There's got to be a joyful time for them, fresh off seeing that, yes, we can come together around God's word. And that's a context I, I never thought. When you read this, these theologians and, and people 
are celebrating almost in essence that we can do this. The Lord has led us the light of the gospel to continue to be moved. Pastor, Dr. Maxfield, we have about five minutes left in our time. So how can we wrap this up with kind of, I mean, to me, this is exciting. Um, looking at how God brought this all together. How do you want to continue? Yeah, I'd like to yeah say that what's most important, and I say this as a historian, certainly, but I, I have a really strong conviction that, uh, that we need to say this also as theologians and as pastors, that to understand the Lutheran Reformation, to understand the Lutheran confessions of the Book of Concord, we need fully to engage the context in which they were written, confessed, published, and eventually, as we've talked about, finally put together in this big book, the Concordia, uh, the Confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. And our tradition in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and its um, partner churches throughout the world, I think we're very good at studying the formula of Concord in the historical con context of that we've been talking about in this dissension over all kinds of different topics that had emerged, especially after Luther's death. Um, I think we do a really good job of understanding that. Although I will say one, one problem that I found in the Missouri Synod's tradition is that our historical introduction to the Book of Concord, which goes back to the St. Louis theologian uh, Friedrich Bente in the publication of, 15, of, of 1921 of the Concordia Triglata, that that historical introduction uh, doesn't follow the principle of the formulators of a concord of not placing personal fault and focusing on the personal animosities of this period of dissension. You'll see if you read that introduction by Friedrich Bente of that uh, heck of a lot, uh, pardon my, well, kind of gentle use of, of language, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of fault finding with Philip Melanchthon. Uh, in that historical introduction. And that's preserved, on, I think, unfortunately, in the historical introductions in this newest edition of the Concordia, um, published by Con uh, Concordia Publishing House. Um, I would exhort uh, theologians to go broader uh, than uh, these brief historical introductions in their study of the confessions. Um, and I would say, especially when turning to the interpreting of the Augsburg Confession. And I, I would say that I, I see and hear a lot of misunderstanding of the Augsburg Confession today among Lutheran pastors, confessional Lutheran pastors, uh, just as Martin Chemnitz dealt with that in the uh, 1560s. And uh, next week, you'll be talking about the role of the Augsburg Confession and the second edition, better known as the Variata of the Augsburg Confession, or next time with, with uh, Dr. Helwig. But um, so I won't talk about that, but, but I will kind of say as my last piece uh, to implore not only teaching theologians, but pastors and also lay people under the direction of pastors to give the Augsburg Confession a fresh read after a very careful study of its development as a, histor as a historical document. Um, because uh, 
the Augsburg Confession was confessed for a context of the summer of 1530 that has been described by some theologians and historians as the star hour of the Augsburg Confession of, and of Philip Melanchthon, its author, but uh, the, a star hour that quickly passed. And not only through its second edition or variata, as it's called in the preface, uh, but through the very use of the Augsburg Confession in the period after 1530, um, we're, we're dealing almost with different documents. Not that the words are different uh, in the original editions, but the way those words are understood in relation to the church's historical context at that time and now, but also in the intervening period from 1530 to 1580, very different contexts in which the meaning and interpretation of the Augsburg Confession uh, really changes. And uh, if that's not understood, the Augsburg Confession is, is really misunderstood. And I see this, for example, with people that, again, opposing that name Lutheran, they don't like the name Lutheran, that's a sect. Um, they say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm an Augsburg Catholic. And I would say, you can call yourself an Augsburg Christian or an evangelical of the Augsburg Confession, or there's even churches with the name Church of the Augsburg Confession. But there is no such thing as an Augsburg Catholic. And I assert that because of the fact, this is an undisputable fact, that the Augsburg Confession was rejected by the Catholic Church at that time and every time since. Most recently in 1980, there was an effort in ecumenical circles to have the papal church, the Catholic church, endorse the Augsburg Confession, or at least to declare it as a true confession of Christian doctrine. And, and that, that has never occurred. And to this day, uh, has never occurred. And that has big implications for any ecumenical discussions that Lutherans have today with the uh, Catholic church. And well, you're giving us a lot to think about for ne next week, Dr. Yes. Maxfield, but we have to, we're out of time. Yeah, so okay. the Reverend Dr. John Maxfield, Associate Professor of History and Religious Studies at Concordia University of Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Maxfield, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters and keep up the good work in Canada. Thank you very much, President Finner, and I really appreciate this time together and uh, ask God's blessings upon you and all our listeners. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner, and thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe.